Before we came, we prayed that God would, during this year, give us a church that was at the top of our list where we could meet him, commune with him, enjoy him with his people week in and week out. That's number one. Uh, Where we would hear the word of God faithfully preached, that's number two. And where uh, we would find a people where we could be happy, especially Talitha would be happy. So (laughs) when you uh, expressed your thanks and welcome, I got very emotional in a good year. You didn't expect this. <laughs> Neither did I. Um, so anyway, this is, uh, before I pray, get into the text. Thank you for uh, being so what we needed. Let's pray. You are a great treasure. Your people are the noble ones in whom is all our delight on the horizontal level because they reveal so much of what you're like. So we thank you for your treasure. And Lord, I ask earnestly now that you would make me faithful to this extraordinary passage of scripture which is so full of inexpressibly great truths. Help me to try to express them in a way that would fill these friends with hope and prepare them for suffering. So come and be our teacher now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, If I were to title this message, it would be um, a spectacular and scary promise, assurance, suffering, and our great inheritance. That would be the title. I'm going to focus on verse 17, not spend all of our time there, but most of it. So let's read it again. If children, that is, if you are children of God, then you are heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So you hear in there a spectacular and a scary promise. It's spectacular because it says, if you're the children of God, you are his heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Now, God is very rich. He owns everything. He made everything. He owns everything. If you are an heir of God, what you are going to inherit makes what Bill Gates has look like a Lincoln Log building or Buffett or anybody else in the list of richest people in the world. They have nothing compared to what you are about to inherit. I'm 68. 
It is a very short time, and it will be mine, all of it. That's spectacular. I mean, this is real, folks. This is real. These are not words. If you are envious of, of, of Bill Gates, you're stupid. I mean, as a child of God, that's insane, right? So just don't think these are words. This, you will inherit God's possessions. Now, we're going to spend half the sermon on that statement. That's just an introduction statement. The, the scary part is right there as well. If children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if this massive condition, you will have it if you suffer with him. If you don't, you won't. That's scary. So we're on this way to this indescribable inheritance, and on the way there, the only path there is suffering. And we'll spend a good bit of time on that as well. So that's where we're going to focus most of our time, the inheritance and, and the suffering. Very real and very amazing, and the second half prevents the first half from being the prosperity gospel. You know what's wrong with the prosperity gospel? The reason it's on my mind right now is because I just got back from Brazil. Everywhere I go in the third world, but especially Latin America, you say, what's your biggest challenge in the church in Brazil? There's no hesitation what they say. Prosperity gospel. We have exported that. That will be put to our account. And it's a horrible distortion. And I'll just give you a little, little nugget here of why it's a distortion in view of this text. The prosperity gospel has a priority problem and a timing problem. The priority problem is the prosperity gospel puts the gifts of God above God. It entices people to God's gifts, making God their bellhop, their butler. Oh, sure, God, but really, your wife won't miscarry, your eight piglets that your pig had will all live, prosper, and you'll be able to sell them, you'll get rich, and, 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 and who wouldn't want that without being born again, right? To, to appeal to people with desires that they would have without being born again is a travesty of the gospel. So the priority issue. Then the timing issue is through suffering, on the other side, we get everything, right? The, the timing issue is they bring it back here, in it's it's too soon. Heaven is for later. That's that's the second problem. So, this is not a sermon about the prosperity gospel. Although virtually every sermon I preach is about the prosperity gospel, because I'm just talking about a better treasure than health, wealth, and prosperity. So that's the scary and the spectacular promise. But here's what we need to do first. It says, if children. See that at the beginning of the verse? Verse 17. If children. That's a big if in this room. Are you a child of God? Seriously now. Do you know 
I belong to the family of God. Everybody's not a child of God. I mean, the world talks like everybody's a child of God. Paul doesn't talk that way. The Bible doesn't talk that way. You get adopted into the family, right? You get adopted into the family. You get born again into the family. The world is not part of the family until they are adopted into the family and born into the family. So you need to ask right now, am I a child of God? Because this will count for you if you are. It won't if you're not. So I have to start there. We're going to spend a few minutes on helping you know. Fifteen minutes from now, you can know whether you are or not. Because it's pretty clear in the context how you know. All right? So if, if you've never been sure, like you struggle with assurance, like I just, it's hard for me to say with confidence, I'm a child of God. And I want you to have that confidence. God wants you to have that confidence. Wobbliness about whether you're a child of God is, is, is a pretty sad life. It's a pretty wobbly life. So let's look at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Has he? So I'm going to answer for you from the text, what's that like? Because right now, my guess is, if we just lined all of you up right here and said, tell me how that happens in your life. Describe that to me. The Spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Go ahead. Each one of you now, explain to me how you experience that. My guess is you'd, half of you would say, I'm really not sure. I, I think it's happened. I hope it's happened. I just don't even know what it means. I don't know what it is. I don't want you to leave ignorant of how this happens, okay? There, in this text, now I'm not claiming this is exhaustive. I'm just saying in this text, there are two ways the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are the child of God. And I'd like you to see what they are. Then you can assess whether they've happened or not. What does a witness do in court? A witness in court gives evidence of something. I saw it. I was there, or I heard it, or I found it, or what, whatever the evidence is needed for conviction, witnesses are brought forth to make that plain in the courtroom so there can be a proper assessment of truth. That's what witnesses do. So the question is, how's the Holy Spirit functioning as a witness here in the courtroom of my soul so that true evidence is being brought forth so that I'm a child of, I know I'm a child of God. First way, look at verses 13 and 14. I love this. This is so helpful, so crucial. And I want you to think with me. Put on your thinking caps for a few minutes about the relationship between the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. All right, let's read it. If, I'm starting in the middle of verse 13. If by the Spirit, right, there he is, and he's the, he's the active agent. You're doing something by him. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That means forever. Four, big argument. Here comes, it's the connection between the two that's going to be illuminating. So that word four matters. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And of course, the logic is this. Sons of God don't die. 
They live forever. That's the connection, right? Read again now. Try to get the flow of the thought. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, that's just temptations that rise up, kill them by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me in the name of Jesus not to do that. That's the opposite of legalism. I'm not going to do that by the Spirit, through faith. I'm availing myself of the Holy Spirit right now not to push that button on pornography, not to lie on that tax return. I am going to tell the truth. I'm going to be holy at this moment by the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. That's what verse 13 says. If by the Spirit you're doing that, you're hating your sin, putting it to death, you're going to live forever. Here's the reason. Why are you going to live forever if you do that? Because everybody led by the Spirit is the Son of God. They live. That's the logic. But did you catch the implication now? Everybody who's led by the Spirit is a child of God. So what I need to know if I'm a child of God is, am I being led by the Spirit? Right? Everyone who's led... Verse 14, everyone who's led by the Spirit is the child of God. So the evidence the Holy Spirit has given you is he's leading you. But now, what if I came into this room and I hadn't said anything so far, and I just said, let's all talk about what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. Are you led by the Holy Spirit? And somebody might stand up and say, I was led to marry her 43 years ago, or I was led to go to school at UT, or I was, I was led to live in Tennessee for a year after I retired, blah, blah, blah. Everybody talk about being led by the Spirit. That's not what this text is talking about. Right? I mean, this text is talking about, let's read it again. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live because everyone who's led that way. Got it? Everyone who's thus led, thus led. So what does led mean? It means led into warfare with sin. Are we with, you with me? Led into warfare with sin. So now, if, that's, if, if you're with me on the logic of this, if by the Spirit you put to death the deed of the body, you will live because everyone who is led, thus led, thus led, will live or is the child of God and child of God lives forever. Now you know what is the evidence that he gives me. I hate my sin and make war on it. If you do, you're a child of God. If you don't, you've got assurance issues, Right? If you love your sin and make peace with your sin and settle in with your sin and walk with your sin every day as friends, you got assurance issues big time, and I would never promise you you're a child of God. You could be because you're maybe in a season of weakness, and you're going to break out of it by his grace in a day or two. But the issue here is, are you being led by the Spirit to kill your sin? I love this. You know how I love it? Because I hate my sin. I feel so good about that. You see what I'm saying? You see the paradox of our lives? I hate John Piper's sin more than I hate yours big time. I don't even know yours, but I know mine better than I know anybody's, and I hate them. I hate them, which means the Holy Spirit is in me. It's really sweet. It is an evidence. It's, a, it's the testimony with my spirit that I am a child of God. I'm making war. I don't succeed very well, but I 
have not made peace with any known sin in my life. One of the reasons we're in community together is we help each other discover the places where we kind of started to live comfortably with our sin. So we need somebody to kind of say, what about that attitude? Say, what attitude? <laughs> oh, you're just kind of, that sin was starting to feel like a friend. It's not a friend, it's a mortal enemy. Like old C.S. Lewis, The Lizard on the Shoulder, that book. He didn't even know it was a lizard till the light went on. Or I've used the image of a, you got a necklace around and you're fondling this little brooch that you have. And so wonderful. And the light goes on. It's a spider hanging around your neck. That's, that's the Holy Spirit that turns that light on and says, what is that horrible thing that, I, that I've cozied up with? Okay, so... Answer number one that I hope you can give now. I don't care about taking tests. I care about walking out of here in this afternoon knowing what the witness of the Holy Spirit is in your life with your spirit. Answer number one, the witness of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit's enabling you to hate your sin and make war on it the rest of your life. Count on it. Your dying day, you'll be making war on sin. You will not in this life get beyond this warfare. I mean, you'd like to. Oh, that day when free from sinning. You know what that day is? Death. (laughs) Or Jesus coming. Oh, for the day to be free from sinning. When I think about heaven and the sweetness of what it will be like to be with Jesus, one of my top two or three happinesses is I won't have to war anymore. I will do from my heart only what's right. I will love only what's good. All my spontaneous reactions to everybody will be pure, and I won't have to regret any of them at the end of the day. That's going to be a good day. A good day. But the point is, it isn't coming early. And it's a mistake. It's a perfectionistic mistake think that you will be beyond this war before you die. What's the second thing that's here? It's in verse 15. This is the second way the Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit that you are his child. Verse 15, middle, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. So in verse 13, By the Spirit, you were putting to death the deeds of the body. What are you doing by the Spirit here? Answer, crying, Abba, Father. So, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life that you are the child of God is that you find rising up from deep in your soul the cry. Daddy, Father... I need you. That's a very humble cry. Childlike cry. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit is that you find yourself sweetly, deeply, authentically saying that. Father? 
To which a skeptic would say, computers can be programmed to say, Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father. Are computers born again? Are computers children of God? It's a big deal. Say, Abba Father, Abba Father, I have the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem with the skeptic at this point is that he's missing a couple of words and their connotation and their powerful implication. One is the word Abba. That Aramaic word is meant to connote tenderness, intimacy, affection, closeness, like daddy or papa. Or, but the, the point here is computers can't feel any of that. So what I'm saying the Holy Spirit does is really give you a tender, sweet, loving, daddy-like embrace of the creator of the universe. It's amazing. You, you don't just doctrinally say, believe in the, in the fatherhood of God. It's not the, that's not the, what the word Abba means. So, no, computers cannot do that. Here's the second problem with the computer analogy. The word cry. See that? By which we kradzomai. That's the Greek. Cry. Why did he choose the word cry? Why didn't he just say, say? Because he's, he's trying to get at the way the heart is doing this. So the heart has got this Abba dimension to it, and the heart's got this cry dimension to it, which computers cannot emulate, and therefore that argument doesn't work. This is real. The, the Holy Spirit, so let's, let's sum it up now. The Holy Spirit changes two things in your soul concerning God as a testimony that you are his child. One is he changes your attitude towards sin in relation to God. Now, now why would that be? Because sin, I didn't say this earlier, sin is any disposition or act or thought that elevates anything in value or desirability above God. And the Holy Spirit spots those things, and the Holy Spirit loves God. He is God's love for God. And he reveals to us all the things in our life that diminish God and make us hate him. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is here, he causes us to see God as our father and to realize our need for a father and make us feel how humbly helpless we are. Unless you turn and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So in those two ways, the Holy Spirit works. Let me throw in a third here that's almost the same as the second, just so that you feel the rounded out picture. Do you remember the text from 1 Corinthians 12, 3? It goes like this. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Computers can say Jesus is Lord. But clearly he means, and mean it, authentically, that is 
really feel a deep, submissive yieldedness to the lordship of Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody in this room is yielded to the lordship of Jesus if you're not a child of God. Because the Holy Spirit is what enables you to say that. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which is the same, isn't it, as nobody can say Abba, Father, except by the Holy Spirit. So the Lordship of Jesus and the fatherhood of God deeply felt, I need you, I submit to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the testimony of the Spirit in your life that you are his child. And so that's, that's my answer to the question how you can know you're a child of God. You hate your sin, and you make war on it. You find a tenderizing humility in your heart that needs a father to meet all your needs and turns to him as a precious father. I care for you. I know your needs. I'll be there for you. And a deep yieldedness to the lordship of Jesus. You're my king. You're my all. And I I yield to you. Those heart things are the work of the Holy Spirit that show you belong him. Okay, now we're ready for the spectacular and scary promise because we know or we don't that we're the child of God. And this promise is for the children of God. If you are children, I'm at verse 17. If you are children, you are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Two great promises. Heirship, suffering. Let's talk about the inheritance first. So I'll ask you, do you have an inheritance on your horizon from God that is so great that in your emotional framework, your day-to-day living, this inheritance is so great, it makes your pleasures here seem small by comparison, and it makes your pain here seem manageable by comparison. Is it, is it functional for you that way? Does, does the inheritance that you see coming very soon, even if you're in your 20s, okay, it's coming soon, And there it is, and it is so great, it is designed, as Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of that. That Is having that function for you? And verse 18 here, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared. Now, for Paul to say that was better than for me to say it, because if you read 2 Corinthians 11, his list of sufferings, you will not be able to breathe by the end of the list. You would just say, how can any one man endure what he endured? And he said, nothing. By comparison, oh, it was something. It was something. Be imprisoned, to be shipwrecked, to be thrown in jail over and over again. And then that five times 39 lashes on his back must have made his back absolutely horrific. In uh, Walter Wangren's novel on Paul, he has a whole chapter called The Back. (laughs) 
39 lashes lays your back open like jelly. Slow to heal, no antibiotics. Lots of scars, infection. A few months later, could manage a little bit. Happens again. Happens again. Happens again. Happens again. Could he move? Could he even move? The scar tissue on his back. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. But my question is, do you have an inheritance functioning like that for you? It would strip us of a lot of murmuring. It really would, which is why I hate my sins so much. What's the inheritance? Three things. Number one, you will inherit the world. Verse Chapter 4, verse 13. It'll be plain why I'm jumping to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So God made a promise to Abraham that he would inherit the world. Is that yours are you in that text? Does that count for you? Now, this takes just a little bit of textual effort. But the answer is yes, if you're a child of God, for this simple reason. Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Simple. I just love it when pieces fit together so well. <laughs> Let me read it again. This is Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, and we just spent half an hour helping you know whether you are. If you are Christ's, if you're a child of God, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Which promise? Romans 4.13 would be one statement of it. The promise to Abraham and his descendants, which you are, is that they will be heir of the world. That's because God owns the world, right? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So he owns it. It's part of his inheritance. Or Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. We are, that's to the Messiah, right? He's making that promise to the Messiah. Ask of me, my son, my Messiah, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance the very ends of the earth as your possessions. And we are fellow heirs with Messiah Jesus. All the nations, all the ends of the earth, ours. Part of the inheritance. Listen, this is one of my favorite verses regarding my inheritance. 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things are yours. That's the big word. All things. All things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, things present, things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So what's your inheritance? The world, the earth, everything in it, 
Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the, come on, earth, that's big, blue planet, a lot of water, a lot of fish, who knows at the bottom, at the bottom of those oceans, we'll know, it's ours, and we'll have the kind of submarines that work in those days. You don't believe that, I'll bet, I do. Or maybe just be able to snorkel down there seven miles to the bottom of the Pacific because we'll have new bodies that work that way. You hold your breath for three or four days. I think you should ponder things like that. What does this practically mean that the world is yours, death is yours, all things are yours? What does that practically mean? I think it means everything exists now by way of inheritance and then finally, in a fuller way, for your benefit. Everything exists to serve you. So I didn't drive my car this morning because we've got issues about how family is going to get here and there. But if I had it, I'd point to it up in the lot there and say, that's my car and the rest of those, that's your car. What's the difference between mine and yours? I can get in mine and go home, right? It serves me. It gets me where I want to go. I can't get in your car and just go where I want to go. You say, hey, hey, that's my car. So this is, it's my world. This gets me where I want to go. Death is mine. Serves me. Stinger removed, door of paradise. The enmity has been removed. It's made my servant. You know what I love? I, I love later down in Romans 8 where it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What is more than a conqueror? I mean, I know what a conqueror is, right? You defeat them, they lie dead at your feet, foot on their neck, you're dead, I win. Now, what's more than that? So death, you're dead. Famine, you're dead. What's more? And more is they get up and serve you. <laughs> like, okay, death, now the rest of my life, you're my slave. So do what I want you to do. Get me to Jesus. Or whatever. Famine, purify my soul. It serves me does what God knows is good for me. So that's my first answer. What is your inheritance? The world. You get everything. Answer number two, God himself is your inheritance. Chapter five of Romans, verse two, second half of the verse. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. What is your hope? What hope are you exulting in? Ultimately, the hope of the glory of God. Unless you think that God and the glory of God are like two separate things, he gets to verse 11 and he says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we exult in the glory of God because the glory of God is God himself in communication, God himself in revelation, God himself standing forth in beauty for our enjoyment. So our inheritance is, is God. So Revelation 21.3, behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The Old Testament loved the promise of the land. We're going to get a land full of milk and honey. But the saints of the Old Testament who gave fullest expression to their hopes they didn't stop there. Like, oh, we get land and we get honey and we get milk. Cool. Like, that's idolatry. They said, whom have I in heaven but you? This is Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the way the Old Testament saints spoke in their fullest expression of what their hope was. So the answer is you get the world and you get the maker of the world as your intimate, close friend, king, Lord, with no wrath, no anger in between at all. Finally, number three, we get new bodies. Redeemed and glorified bodies. And there are two reasons why I think I should mention this. One is that it's coming very quick in the context in verse 23. And the other is that you cannot enjoy the world and you cannot enjoy God as fully as you are meant to enjoy it and him without new bodies. You will, without a new body, be consumed, incinerated in the presence of God and in the presence of your glorious friends. I remember the first time I noticed uh, Matthew thirteen forty-three. is it? Did I write it down? Yeah, thirteen forty-three. And you, Jesus in the parable speaking now to the followers, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. So I'm looking at you right now, every one of you. You, children of God, will shine like the sun, which means what? I can't look at you. I go blind. You go outside and try to look at the sun. You go blind. In a matter of seconds, you'll go blind if you try to focus with your eyes open on the sun, which means we can't enjoy each other. In this body, period. You've got to have a new body just to enjoy the people of God. Well, you're going to be new and you're going to see new and God himself is going to be now gloriously seen with new eyes. You will be able to hold your breath for three days if that would be good for you. See what's going on down there at the bottom of the seven-mile deep Pacific Ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you say, oh, it says there's not going to be any ocean over in Revelation 21. I'd say, no, I think that means it's going to be a lake. That's another sermon. (laughs) You like water, you're not going to be disappointed. We will get redeemed bodies. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. There it is. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, showing that we're going to get it. Groan right now while we have the Spirit, knowing we're the children of God, having this magnificent inheritance. We are groaning inwardly, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Without that promise, mm, I just visited my friend Larry a few weeks ago when I was in Minneapolis. And he and his wife stood on the porch and I said, big tears in my eyes. I said, Larry, I will see you in heaven. He's going to be dead in a few days, by the way. Cancer everywhere. He's about my age. I went to spend some time with him, shared 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 10, sang, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, sang, uh, oh, that favorite song we have, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Okay, that's the song. <laughs> we sang that on his porch together. I didn't, I didn't try to pull any wool over this. You're dead. You're dead shortly. We're not, we're not playing for, praying for healing here except heavenly healing. We are, you are dead. I, I will see you very soon. I love having a gospel that says, you get a new body. (laughs) You get a new body. And it is glorious. And then there every manner of of birth defect and disability and accident and maiming. And I mean, the world is just full of horrors, right? You, You try to minister in places where they don't have any medicine at all. And you have to deal with things that are just horrific. We have a message. We have a message, namely the inheritance includes a new body, a new body. And the best thing about the new body is not like it's going to be like all of your healthy bodies. It's going to be spectacularly more. We will be able to discern things and see things and enjoy things. There'll be no more idolatry in our enjoyment of food. We won't ever be gluttons. We'll enjoy it perfectly. And God will be in it and through it and behind it and over it. And it will be what it ought to be. And same thing with, with every other delight we've known. And if you say, well, there's no marriage in heaven. That makes sex a problem. Well, not really a problem. God can figure that out. No pleasure is going backward in heaven. You with me here? No. You're not going to say, oh, shoot, we're in heaven. It was better on earth. You won't say that. About anything, including sex. So all you single folks who may never be married, this is very short compared to that exquisite better than sex thing that it gets replaced by. I don't know what it is because that's going to be good. Dwell on your new body implications because they are glorious. Okay. Just a few closing things on this issue of suffering. So here's summing up. You get the world, you get God, and you get a body that can enjoy the world and enjoy God without any idolatry and more fully than you ever dreamed. If you suffer with him. Here we are, verse 17. If children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. So being glorified with him is part of that new body if you suffer with him. 
Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Anyone. That's what discipleship looks like. Self-denial and cross. Cross is a death instrument, electric chair, hangman's noose, self-denial, saying no to things that would be short-term pleasure for the long-term joy of holiness. So that's, that's what life is. Suffering, Jesus said. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews 12.6, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, sons. The sons suffer. The children suffer. That's the mark of the child. They suffer. 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. No pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. That's the way it is. And the big question that you should be asking, I surely ask is, what kind of suffering does he have in mind? Like, do I need to go out of here and find somebody to be persecuted by? Like, I haven't been persecuted recently, and so I'm wondering if I'm a child of God or it, will I get my inheritance because nobody's hit me or put me in jail or said a nasty thing about me in a few weeks, you know. No, you shouldn't do that. You should not go and try to get persecuted by doing something irritating. Um, or, or like I saw in Minneapolis when I was home to visit Larry, um, I saw two street preachers on Nicollet Avenue, and I, I love the courage of street preachers. I'll tell you, I love the courage of street preachers. And the first one, I stopped, I prayed for him, and he had his Bible open, and he was speaking in a, in a winsome way, and, and I, I, I really admired him. Two blocks away was a guy with this gigantic sign that said, God is angry with you. Now, that's true. It's not helpful. It's not the best way to do it. I mean, it's my judgment call. Like, you're not helping the cause, fellow. I don't think so. Uh, and I believe in Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Just don't think he would have done it that way. Now, why did I bring that up? Totally lost my train of thought. What was that? Okay. No pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. What kind of sufferings? Not the kind that brings unnecessary persecution on Nicollet Avenue, on yourself. Well, why do you think that? I mean, you say that, but why do you think that? Is that in the text? Yeah, it is. It is, because just follow the train of thought. So verse 17, if you suffer with him, you will be glorified. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. What are those? The groaning of creation that needs a new body. Get the tr flow of thought here from verse 17 to 18 to 20, the decay, the 21, the, the bondage to slavery and corruption. Verse 22 and 23, groaning, groaning, groaning. What kind of groaning? I want a new body. This is cancer. This is disability. This is whatever makes you groan with longing and aching that it would be otherwise. So if you, if you push me on tech, what's the textual meaning of suffering here? Don't just, don't just go to Nicollet Avenue and make it up. The textual meaning of suffering is the suffering of this present time, which makes us groan longing for new bodies. 
that's what he has in mind foremost. So then the question is, well, it says if we suffer with him. See that? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Is that suffering with him? Like is cancer suffering with him? Is being... My answer is yes, in this sense. Every time a negative thing comes into your life, physically negative, emotionally negative, relationally negative, hurtful, painful, you don't want it, you wish it weren't there, that is a test. Will you stand with Jesus, lean on Jesus, and take Jesus as your treasure in that moment rather than turning away from Jesus and abandoning him? Every single negative thing in your life is an opportunity. Are you with Jesus or are you walking away from Jesus? That's what every test is. Every single painful test in your life is, will you stay with him or will you leave him? So suffering with Jesus simply means whatever painful thing comes into your life, is he, are, you, are you getting closer? I'm taking you. I'm going to hold on to you. You're all I have. That is what you must experience in order to be glorified. If you walk away from this, I'm sick and tired of having my back beat up and being thrown in jail and going into the ocean over and over again when you're the god of the waves and could keep this boat up. I'm sick of following you. I'm out of here. I'm going to enjoy myself the last 20 years. It's over. It's over. But if you stay with Jesus in your suffering, then glorification and inheritance are on the way. I'm going to close with a quote from... uh, John Newton, that lots of you have heard before, I'm sure. But it's one of my favorites because it's so convicting and so encouraging. Uh, You know who Newton was? It doesn't really matter whether you do or not. The quote works. So here is the practical effect of the inheritance on our daily lives. And here's a picture of how inconsistent we are when we grumble. Quoting now from Newton. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. So that's a picture of you going to get your inheritance, all right? Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city. So this is, you know, 150 years ago. No cars, just a carriage. His carriage should break down a, a mile one mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining while. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He's on his way to get a million dollars. One mile he has to walk. I hate my sin. Don't you? Don't you hate your grumbling, your murmuring? I got to walk one mile called 80 years. 
We're going to eat the Lord's Supper in a minute. And the connection is this. Do you know where all of this comes from? All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Because he said at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus purchases all the promises of the new covenant. The promise that we'll have an inheritance through faith in Jesus. So the, the very simple thing to think is this. This is the way I approach the Lord's Supper virtually every time. If you love the promises, consider the price. If you love the promises, meditate on the price. And the price was the death of Jesus. None of us in this room would have any inheritance had he not died for us. And now we're going to go to the Lord's Supper and we're going to remember. He gave us the Lord's Supper so that we would proclaim the Lord's death until he come and so that we would remember the price. So at this church, as I've enjoyed it for the past year, uh, you don't need to be a member here, but you need to know Jesus. Don't eat the Lord's table without enjoying the Lord's favor through faith in Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you now for your holy, holy word and your precious Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God by making us hate our sin, make war on our sin, and by turning our hearts to you as our Father and causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, and by causing us to yield to your Lordship and say, Jesus is Lord. I praise you that the world is ours and that you are ours and new bodies will be ours. And I praise you, Lord, even that suffering is necessary in order to keep us focused and not let us drift away in love to the world. Make us willing. And as we eat now, grant, I pray, that we would remember the price of these glorious promises. Namely, Jesus and his death.